0: Hello, everyone. Welcome to the New Books Network. This is the Sociology Channel. My name is Richard Osijo of the City University of New York, and I'm being joined today by Jean Beeman of Purdue University. She's going to be talking to us about her new book, Citizen Outsider, Children of North African Immigrants in France. Thank you so much for being on the show today, Jean.
1: Thanks so much for having me. I'm really excited.
0: Well great. Well how about you tell us uh, first by uh, tell us a little bit about your own uh personal background, your professional background and how you came to to write this book and to study this very interesting population.
1: Yeah, sure. So, um as you mentioned, I am a professor at Purdue now, but um I got into this topic for both personal and kind of more scholarly reasons. I came into this Topic through learning French um, beginning in middle school, so this is you know a couple more than a couple of decades ago, um, and I really, I mean, I still really love the French language, and I kept up with it through high school, and then um, you know I was always very curious about what France, French society is like, besides sort of what I read in the textbooks at the time or watched in sort of cheesy French films from the '90s. Um, so that I, when I was an undergraduate at Northwestern, I did a study abroad program in Paris uh, for my junior year, and I lived with a French family, and I started having a lot of really interesting experiences being African American in Paris, uh, particularly around sort of issues around um, my own racial and ethnic identity, and sort of what it means to be American uh, in another country. And so I also at that time started learning more about kind of the history of African-American expatriates to Paris and sort of how Paris fit into that history and why it was important. So this is sort of these things are kind of percolating in the back of my mind for years. And then la- years later, when I was in my doctoral program, I knew I was interested in race and ethnicity and urban sociology and those sorts of topics, or topic areas. And I started reading up about people who had done work on um, on France, kind of related to issues of identity. So like um, Louis Lacan or Michelle Omar or some of these people, and at least at the time, it seemed like most of the existing research was on um, recent immigrants or sort of first-generation immigrants. And so I got interested in sort of what it might be like to be a, minor- a racial and ethnic minority in France or sort of what it's like to be a second-generation immigrant, um, sort of connected to this colonial history, but still someone who had spent their whole lives in France. Uh, so that's how I found my population, and that's kind of what I ended up doing my, uh, my dissertation work on.
0: Oh, great. It's a great background, great story. And you start the book with a story of one of the participants, one of the the folks from this population, the the Maghrebine population, and it's a man named uh, Abdelkrim who is born in France, but is of Algerian descent. And you show how he really feels, how there's this disconnect between uh, where he was born and how he is perceived. And mm-hmm. this really gets at the core of the book, the idea that he feels French, but that he is not regarded in his own country as being French.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I think, um yeah, I part of the reason why I like starting why why to start the book with that story is I think I guess as sort of the tension I'm hoping to explore throughout the book of sort of in kind of subverting this idea of these are not people these are not individuals who see themselves as um as different, but rather these are individuals who are made to feel different and sort of, you know, this idea of Uh, this population only feeling French or only being perceived as French when they're outside of France and sort of how do they, how do they make sense of that over the course of their lives? Right. And
0: you're doing, you're doing a number of things in this book. And one of them is, is really challenging this idea of uh, French exceptionalism, this uh, colorblind ideology that France has uh, by really showing how race, ethnicity, and culture play, uh, really key roles in who can claim a French identity. And you're really demonstrating that there is this racial project that is happening in France. Tell us a little bit about this uh, this exceptionalism that uh, France has, mm-hmm. this colorblind ideology.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, what I think, one of the things I think is so interesting about French society is, I mean, it's very differently organized from American society, right? So, they have ostensibly on its face this idea that all individuals are individuals in their relationship to the state or to the republic. Um, and so it kind of, there's not the same kind of identity centered uh, group identity projects. <coughs> Excuse me. They're not the same kind of identity politics of identity based group communities. Um, and so, But so they don't sort of recognize race and ethnicity as legitimate identities. So they don't measure in their census or anything like that. So on the face of it, you know, France is a very sort of, or, you know, asserts itself to be a very post-racial or anti-racial society. However, uh, what I found through my research is that even without the sort of state categories uh, based on race and ethnicity, people who are seen as non-white are therefore still seen as non-French, right? And so that's, I see, I argue that that's an example or a manifestation of France's racial project. So I was really um, inspired by OmniLine's framework because I think it allows us to think about how, you know, racial demarcations come in, in the absence of sort of state-level categories and the different ways that populations are seen as non-white um, without sort of explicitly told that. And so that's kind of how I try to talk about uh, the racial projects operating in France today.
0: Right, right, and, and the population you focus on—the the, the North African immigrants—are uh, legally French citizens, but uh, culturally feel very marginalized. And this is where we get the title for your book: this idea of being a citizen mm-hmm. outsider, which is, you know, just a fascinating oxymoron. It's a very enticing mm-hmm. uh, title. So, tell us a little bit about uh, how that. Uh, oxymoronic phrase really uh, resonates in this text.
1: Yeah, so um, this idea of citizen outsider is actually really rooted in a black feminist framework of thinking about how individuals can be simultaneously part of society yet kept on the margins of society, which you know directly applies to African Americans but applies to other groups worldwide as well. And so I was really interested in how I think a lot of the discourse, both sort of popular discourse and the existing literature, focuses on, you know, um, children of immigrants or second and third generation immigrants as sort of, you know, being economically excluded. Um, But it doesn't really account for or allow us to account for people who are sort of technically part of French society, yet still, you know, as manifestations of this racial project kept, kept on the margins of that society. So I really wanted to kind of play with, you know, not just the question of like people who are immigrants, but also what happens to people who are literally like born in France and have spent their whole whole lives in France, France, but are still continually kept on the marginal society. And I would argue that France presently doesn't have a discourse or a language to
0: talk about that kind of marginalization. Right. So you're focusing on the second instead of the first or one and a half generation. And you're also really focusing on the middle class, not Mm -hmm. lower income struggling groups, Mm -hmm. but people who have from an objective uh, criteria standpoint, have, have made it, have have succeeded, have done everything that they were told to do, um, learned the lessons of what it means to be French and how to succeed and gain upward mobility, uh, but who still feel this, this marginality?
1: I mean, the focus on the middle class segment was actually um – not, it wasn't something I thought out had to do when I went to do my dissertation research. It sort of came out of the way that I was doing snowball sampling to find recruit um respondents. And then um I started to sort of play that up more theoretically as I was transforming this into a book, Um partly because, well, yeah, I was inspired by the work on the African-American middle class by Mary Patillo, who was my dissertation uh, co-chair, and other scholars. And so thinking about, like, if we really want to talk about how race and ethnicity are central, to structure in French society, I think it's helpful to, you know, using, to using quantitative language, quote, unquote, control for socioeconomic status. So these are people who are very much, um, my respondents, that is, are people who are very much believe in Republican ideology. They just disagree with how it's implemented. And so they very much feel like they've done everything they're supposed to do, as you mentioned. And so they, you know, financially are doing pretty well and they're well educated. Many of them have advanced degrees um, and they have sort of stable, quote, unquote, middle class jobs. But they still experience this racism and marginalization, um, and so there's not, you know, so like, what do they do with that? Basically, becomes a struggle if it's not a sort of like if there's there's nothing they can do to actually be seen as friends by others, or sort of left with this sort of um, constant issue.
0: Yeah, and you talk in chapter two about how these these feelings of being different or being marginal really first emerge in this population in childhood when they're growing up when they're receiving these different messages about who they are at home compared to who they're seen at school and who they're seen as in the public so it's this other another just a perfect example of how they grow up in france but don't really necessarily grow up french so what are some of these mm-hmm. different messages they hear at home versus at school
1: mm-hmm. yeah so i start um, I, I start sort of the narrative um, in childhood because I want to stress that this is a message that they receive at a barely early age and spend, mo- and spend most of their lives trying to sort of reconcile or make sense of. So for a lot of my respondents, they uh, grew up as, you know, one of the few uh, Maghreban or North African families or, you know, otherwise like non-white families, in their particular communities. And so as kids, they often sort of heard various ethnic slurs directed towards them. They received various sort of slights from teachers in school. Um, both explicitly and implicitly, um, you know, teachers saying that they, you know, will never be successful. These sorts of these sorts of messages, and I think, you know, I mean, Bordeaux talked about this years ago, but I think, you know, it's it's also helpful to think to remember how centralized French Republican society is, and how the sort of school is this, is a crucial institution for making or instilling French Republican values, and how my population was often sort of excluded from these ideas of, you know, who is a French person. And I think, you know, more broadly, it's interesting because um, I think this gets at how sort of French republicanism as enacted in the schools doesn't talk enough about the history of French colonialism. So there's not a literal place of here's what happened to where your parents are from, et cetera, et cetera, and how horrific it was. Like there's not even those sorts of discourses. And so I think what ends up happening for a lot of my respondents is they hear a sort of... One message of what it means to be French at school, and then they go home to families where that's very different or their sort of lives are very different, and that's not and, and there's very different messages they receive from their family about how to make sense of that
0: yeah, and I think a lot of readers are going to really understand the the use of education use of schools to uh, really convey this sense of of republicanism um, but what i found interesting was the uh, the the higher education and college and the, uh, um, higher institutions to where we also really observe these messages go on. So, you know, on the one hand, obviously, the whole fact that they are in uh, college and law school and graduate programs is obviously a sign of their, their upward mobility, their, their social advancement. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, absolutely. On, but on the other hand, they have great difficulty really... Uh, integrating socially, culturally into these institutions, into getting within some of these social networks that really uh, fulminates in uh, college and in law school and Mm -hmm. in other sorts of programs like that and getting into some of these social groups, which is another major determinant of whether or not they feel uh, included um, or even in terms of other forms of advancement once they're done with uh, school.
1: In that sense, I think it's not that unlike, uh, you know, what we know about uh, the experiences of, you know, African-American or Latino or Latina uh, uh, college and university students, right, and the marginalization that they, that they experience as college students on predominantly white campuses and how that kind sort of, you know, often shapes, uh, not always in a good way, what happens to them
0: after graduation. So I saw a lot of parallels there as well right and then continuing on through life uh as the the north african origin people in france who you studied go through uh, a young adulthood into their adult lives they they constantly confront these different domains uh where they feel their marginal status like the workplace their neighborhoods and other areas of the public sphere and you know these these navigations through uh, everyday life, really remind them of their, what you call like their liminal social positions. They're they're mm-hmm. essentially, you say, cultural brokers in two different ways. They're uh, both between white slash French culture and their Maghrebin cultures, uh, mm-hmm. but they're also between their working class origins and their current middle class uh, environs. So what are some mm-hmm. of these, how, how does this play out? through uh, some of these different everyday domains.
1: I wanted to kind of make that point um, because to sort of highlight how sort of specific or different the experiences of the middle class segment of the North African origin second generation um, is, from, you know, their working class counterparts, but then also from, you know, other um their their white counterparts, their white middle class counterparts. And so I think um for a lot of my respondents, they felt um they experienced marginalization, you know, in terms of race, but that's color also, excuse the pun, huh, But by, <laughs> by um their upper class mobility. So they often feel, you know, guilt about their um working class counterparts that didn't make it or were successful, but then they also feel um Limited, and just to give one example, in the workplace that they feel like they are not able to sort of move up the occupational hierarchy, and they they interpret that solely because of their North African origins, but they still recognize that they have it better than a lot of other North African origin individuals in France, and so it's this constant sort of tension between you know how do I sort of reconcile these two these two realities. Um, and then I think it also comes up in sort of how they negotiate issues around where they live or where they feel like they can live. So, for example, housing discrimination came up a lot in my research. Uh, respondents feeling like they couldn't – well, there's. I mean, I think this was a, a general sort of race-related issue, but respondents feeling that they would, you know – Call a prospective landlord just to check out an apartment, and the apartment was apparently available when they actually showed up. It like shockingly wasn't, right? And this is like a this is a story I heard a lot. Um, and this is again something that, that doesn't have anything to do with. Um, the socioeconomic economic status, because many of our respondents were saying that wasn't the issue. We had money. We could have afforded, you know, whatever first month, last month, whatever. But it was more that, like, as soon as a landlord would see us or recognize that we don't have a, a traditional, you know, French name, then suddenly we were we were treated differently. And so it's just like they're constantly reminded of how they go so far, but but can't go all the way, right? So they can sort of, you know have enough money to go to a fancy restaurant or a fancy nightclub, and then but they can't actually get into the nightclub, or they go to the restaurant and they're seated in the back and not in like the sort of desirable seats. And so it's, it's a sort of accumulation of these kinds of incidents that I think, again, like French society is completely incapable of talking about, because every sort of idea of marginalization in French society, or most ideas, rather, are often framed in terms of class-related issues. And so there's not a sort of way to talk about... What well, money, is it the issue or is it the core issue, what's really going on? And so I felt like the experiences of my respondents as adults, as working adults, I think really illustrates a lot of these tensions.
0: Yeah, it's perhaps not surprising that Islam and their Muslim either backgrounds or their faith obviously intersect with a lot of these uh, different issues mm-hmm. and everyday experiences that they have.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean I think what's interesting about the Islam question, because that's often a question I get. Um, when I talk about about my work, is the sort of question about how much of this is really in an Islam story or a Muslim story or a radical Islam story, what have you. Um, But I was really struck by doing my research, the sort of heterogeneity or variation in how my respondents thought about being Muslim. Um, And I think that that sort of heterogeneity is often missing when we talk about not just Muslims in France, but really Muslims all over Europe. Um, so I think, you know, for example, some of my respondents were much more practicing and they saw being a Muslim as a big part of their identity or their individual identity. Others saw themselves more as like cultural Muslims where it was sort of like, well, I grew up this way, but it's, you know, and maybe I'll, I'll fast during Ramadan like every other year, but it's not that deep for me, right? Um, but the idea I think here is, again, because France is a recognize race and ethnicity as legitimate, they're sort of, these individuals are sort of assumed in this Muslim other category. And so even if they, you know, personally believe in the sort of tenets of Russian Republican ideology as sort of being very private, or at least keeping to the private sphere of their religious practices, they're often framed as that they don't believe that, as if they're much more, much more you know, in your face about it, right? And so, and I guess I try, I try to argue in the book that this only this only happens because France doesn't have a way of talking about racial and ethnic differences. So everything becomes a sort of, or one of the things that happens is things become a sort of Muslim or Islamic difference. Right. Meanwhile, and that's something that my respondents have to respond to. Yeah. Right. Sorry.
0: Right. Right. Yeah. Meanwhile, yeah, as you found, it doesn't take that much to find, but there, there's this remarkable cultural heterogeneity that's, uh, that's going on in this, in this population. Uh, the, The fourth chapter has the cool title, uh, French is, French ain't, uh, in -hmm. which you you really talk about the boundaries surrounding uh, French and Maghreb identities. Uh, Mm -hmm. Your participants, really, they don't have what Mary Waters refers to as ethnic options. Um, Mm -hmm. They have trouble being seen as French and they're really unable to... Uh, to really dictate the salience of their own ethnic origins to white French citizens. So how do they invoke their ethnic origins? How are they able to uh, experience living in these two worlds in terms of their identities?
1: Funny you mentioned uh, Mary Water, because I was going to have ethnic options be part of the that the title for that chapter, but that fell away in the revision process. Anyway. Um, yeah, no, I mean, so I think, so it's interesting. Um, I'll just kind of step back and say when I kind of went into the field, I thought there'd be much more of a sort of declaration or movement towards sort of having a kind of, you know, African-American-esque kind of group identity politics in France. And what I found is it's really like the opposite. I mean, my respondents were are more likely to assert they are French, but then when they get these sorts of like, you know, kind of what we say with the perpetual foreign, foreigner syndrome, when they get these sorts of, you know, well, where are you really from questions, then they'll say, oh, well, I'm, you know, French of uh, Moroccan origin, or French of Tunisian origin, or, you know, sometimes for, for some of my respondents, just Tunisian origin, person who lives in France, right? And so when, so I, I argue that if this is kind of a response to... The marginalization, the experience of not being able to actually be accepted as French by others. That then they have to sort of qualify, be French with a sort of qualifier attached to it. I mean, some of my respondents are very assertive about, you know, we refuse to say that we're uh, French of Maghreb origin or French of Moroccan origin. And we just insist upon the French as the sole identity. But I think that's actually really hard hard to do because there's always so much pushback of sort of well, where did you really come from? And, you know, there's, it doesn't end in the line of questioning, so to speak. Uh, so that's kind of where you see them kind of try to think about, well, how can I think about my Maghreb origins as part of, like, the actual identity I explain to other people?
0: Right, right, right. It's something that's denied them the... To- Option of being able to do something different or right, to do something else. Uh, so throughout the book, yeah. and you really, you've talked about it a little bit uh, so far in this interview, but you really bring up the uh, comparing their experiences with those of minority groups in the U.S. Uh, obviously, immigrants, but also uh, African Americans, and you really sometimes explicitly make these connections and parallels. Uh, is mm-hmm. this something that you? Were expecting to find when you first started this project, or was it something that mm-hmm. became immediately apparent to you as you were uh, going along?
1: No, I didn't have that in my mind. I mean, I was curious about how the experiences of you know minor- racial and ethnic minorities in France might compare with racial and ethnic minorities um, in the United States, primarily because I was you know really motivated by this question of like what does it mean to be a minority in France in a society that doesn't recognize. Um minorities um but I was yeah, so I was struck when I was there and when I was you know interviewing and talking with folks how much they often made connections with the experiences of racial and ethnic minorities in other societies, including the U.S. And so what came out of my research is like trying, you know, I initially was trying to be very cautious of making sort of direct comparisons, primarily as an American researcher. But what came out of the research is that a lot of my respondents were making these connections themselves and really seeing their circumstances or or using the circumstances of racial and ethnic minorities in other societies to make sense of their own um, their own
0: circumstances.
1: Um, so, yeah, that was something that came out of the research that I, I had not anticipated.
0: Yeah, I thought that was quite fascinating how these folks really relate to and and really access the plight of African Americans and tap into mm-hmm. what you call a, a transnational blackness. Uh, given their given their exclusion in their home country, they mm-hmm. they really identify with other marginalized groups around the world. And right. you really ask the question. Um, are Maghribin origin people black? It's it's quite mm-hmm. fascinating. It's a great discussion you have.
1: Mm-hmm. I mean, I think that that sort question kind of came out of you know when I was sort of talking to people about my research. It's like, well, are you talking about black people? Or are you talking about Muslim people? And I was like, I think that question is not a good one. <laughs> but so I, you know, because I I think what ends up happening is you think about blackness as a sort of vessel category. Of difference, it's very clear that you know my respondents see themselves as aligned with you know African Americans, but also sort of other or othered or marginalized communities such as like, Palestinians, um, you know what have you. So it, I think that that's actually the move I'm trying to make towards thinking about when well, we're talking about blackness, especially across national contexts, like what are we really talking about? So we're not hopefully <laughs> talking about blackness as solely as phenotype. We're thinking about it in a more sort of social way of people who are sort of at the Lower rungs of whatever sort of societal formation they happen to be a part of, um, and so yeah, so that's i mean I was really kind of struck with also i think this at least mergers in France because again of a sort of lack of language um, or you know or discourse to talk about these things, and so I was really struck by. A lot of my respondents, and you know, partly I think because they're so well educated and various other things, were able to sort of or have accessed these experiences in other contexts, so they can sort of relate their experiences to, um, you know, what they've read about Malcolm X, to give it one example. So like they're constantly sort of making sense of their experiences through looking outside of France, because within France there's less of a sort of discourse or acknowledgement of the situations that they that they face.
0: Yeah, and it really made me think about the power of African American culture and how mm-hmm. how much it's spread through, you know, obviously literature, film, music, mm-hmm. and just how much yeah. is, is out there of the African American story and experience for yeah. other marginalized groups to draw from, despite being in very very different contexts.
1: Yeah, it's really fascinating too because I was, you know, when I was in the field, I would think a lot about like why are they so, are some of my respondents so conversant in, you know, Malcolm X, for example, but like less conversant in France-Fanon? Like that doesn't seem like logical. Um, But yeah, I think it's also because like they, again, like we're not exposed to that history, you know, going through the French educational system, but we're able to seek out such figures outside of the French context. So it's kind of, it's a weirdly sort of ironic thing.
0: No, it's a, it's an interesting conclusion that you draw, and that is that the, the racial and ethnic situations in the U.S., this is one, one among several conclusions, in the U.S. and France, they're usually seen as being very different, but really your book is showing how their experiences are rather similar, <laughs>
1: Yeah. And I think, um, you know, I think it's really interesting because they're both plural societies that are organized very differently. And so if we're seeing so much similar similarity um in the kind of everyday experiences of racial ethnic minorities. You know, what does it tell us about the role of state level categories? Right. And so or the ways in which or the limitation of state level categories. So even though France is ostensibly post-racial or, you know, never racial, what have you, they clearly are do, are doing a lot of the same work. To make sure that certain sort of populations are seen as different and not included in the sort of French community the same way that we in the United States use state categories and various other things to remind other populations that they're not included in the sort of ideal American type right so there 's a lot of similarities there in terms of how marginalization based on race and
0: ethnicity actually operates mm. now the book is obviously not about this but i'm, I'm my apologies, but i 'm curious uh, what what do you think you would have learned? if you had studied more working-class, second-generation populations as opposed to uh, the middle class. So folks who uh, do not have that, uh, I guess, material basis for uh, Mm -hmm. thinking of themselves as French or as active members of French society. I'm just curious to hear your thoughts.
1: What book I would have written if I had done
0: that? Or just what, what do you think you would have learned if you had focused on that population or done a comparison, say, between uh, lower-income, working-class populations of the second generation in France versus the middle-class folks who you've focused on?
1: Yeah. I mean, I imagine I would have thought, I would have learned a lot more a lot more about sort of the limitations of the perceptions of the limitations of upper mobility in France, um, because I do think, you know, um, many of my respondents who are middle-class still have working-class siblings and parents and neighbors and what have you. And so I think there is a way in which um, they are more cynical in some ways about the possibilities to actually be included in French society. And so I would be curious to think about like how working class counterparts still may or may not have some sort of optimism about sort of how well they could, you know, move up the ladder, et cetera, et cetera.
0: Yeah, it's just interesting to the, to to think about. So the uh, let's come to the the methods. I love asking authors about their uh, their methodological experiences, and you have a great appendix where you discuss how uh, you really kind of were between two worlds. You were uh, mm-hmm. you yourself were both an insider and an outsider in many ways. You were mm-hmm. uh, an outsider as Someone who, you know, as an American, as a non-French mm-hmm. person who's studying French people in another country, but you're mm-hmm. also an insider in the sense that you are a member of a uh, a racial minority group in the U.S. And you'd really discuss mm-hmm. quite well how these are these boundaries that you really negotiated um, and that are, are especially salient because obviously you're studying the uh, intersections here of race, identity, difference, and marginalization. So, uh, mm-hmm. I was wondering if you could just talk a little bit about these these multiple social positions that you occupied mm-hmm. and the impact that they had on on the research you did.
1: I mean, I think I'm always um, as as someone who teaches about uh, teaches qualitative methods classes to graduate students, I'm always trying to think about like how getting them to push beyond this sort of what either you're an insider or an outsider kind of bi- binary. And I think partly that's because of my own research experience, I was really um, struck by, kind of just circle back to your earlier question, uh, how my identity as a black American was really implicated in how people um, interacted with me. And so how they sort of would then make particular assumptions about you know what it's like to be black because they were operating on a shared sense of, or, or thinking that they were operating on a shared sense of what blackness means regardless of a national context and so that's not something I anticipated at all um, before I went there and then it was also sort of interesting and this, it sort of goes back to my kind of biographical interest in this topic um, how respondents related to me as an American citizen and how much a sort of perception of the U.S. Um, was implicated in that as well. So when I did my study abroad program and I guess I'm uh, JD, myself, this was, it was, um, for the 2000, uh, Bush election. And so there was a lot of sort of negative sentiment about not just our, our, you know, electoral practices with the sort of hanging chads and those sorts of things, but also about, you know, just about George Bush himself, right? Um, and then when I was doing fieldwork work this book and for my dissertation, it was during the first campaign of Obama. And so I was really struck by how. Um, well, one, I was asked, I mean, I was asked about that all the time, um, but how people in France, both my respondents, were just like sort of people living in, you know, cafes or people I met in um, in big stores or whatever, big shops or whatever, um, were sort of thinking about it, sort of, will France ever get its own version of Obama? And so it sort of opened up a lot of conversations without my having to do so about, like, what would that look like and what that would mean? Like, what would, what? Does France need it sort of, you know, need a sort of proceeding civil rights movement, um, a la what we have or had, um, to get that version of Obama? And then is there any way to have a, a French version of Obama without the sort of identity politics that we have in the United States? So it actually automatically opened up a lot of discussions about, you know, that my respondents would ask me about my experience as being black in the United States, um, and then how that sort of, was similar or different to their perceptions of what it's like to be Black in the United States and also their their experiences being a racial minority within France. So it's sort of, my, I guess, so, so I'll typo on it. I guess I would say, like, what's was really fascinating to me about it is sort of thinking about ways in which my personal identity became implicated in the research process, but then that also sort of was very, um, you know, was data in and of itself and really revealing of how my respondents were thinking about these, you know, the relationship between race and nation.
0: Yeah, you, you discuss it quite well. I'm, I'm sure students and, and yeah, you know, really anybody, senior scholars can can get a lot of get a lot out of that discussion. So uh, I always hate ending with this question because I'm always talk to authors who just spent all this time working on a book. But before we let you go, I was wondering if you could tell us what you're doing now. What is next? What's going to be the next uh, thing that you work on?
1: Yeah, I mean, I started to, I mentioned this briefly in the conclusion of the book, but I'm in the middle of doing research now on police violence in France against racial and ethnic minorities. Um, and so thinking about, I got interested in it uh, semi-recently because I saw a little bit of coverage about Black Lives Matter in France in the New York Times. And so that got me interested in like, oh, there's something going on in France. So I'm currently... Doing uh, fieldwork and interviews with various activists who um, are, you know, concerned about this issue of police brutality and police violence, and but trying to think about how to sort of mobilize or you know do activism in this around a race-related issue in a context in which race and ethnicity are not seen as legitimate. And so, how do you, how much you, how much you, how should you frame or how must you frame this sort of growing social problem? So that's why I'm in the middle of. Um, of investigating now. So I've been making lots of trips back and forth uh, to Paris to talk to different activists, go to demonstrations. It's, you know, the idea or the problem of police violence excuse me, against minorities is not as pronounced in raw numbers uh, as it is here in the United States. But nonetheless, there have been a few high-profile incidents in recent years. And I think there's a larger way also that you could connect a lot of what's happening in French history through this notion of sort of violence or state-sponsored violence um against minorities. So just to give a quick example, um I think the two thousand five uprisings in various banlieue communities, also France for about three weeks, got a lot of international attention. But I think what got less attention perhaps is that the uh, you know what sort of ignited, if you will, these uprisings were to ethnic minority youth fleeing the police and being electrocuted in a substation, right? And so thinking about the ways in which, like, the police is really implicated um, in how ethnic minorities live in France and how the ethnic minorities are trying to sort of mobilize against that issue in a very different kind of context that we have, um, or context either with the state, as we have um, in the
0: United States. Look forward to hearing more about that, and hopefully you come on the show when that book is done. Um, Thank you so much. Thank you for coming. Thanks for joining us, Gene, and uh, take care. We'll talk to you soon.
1: Thanks so much. It was great.